WVIA's Mind Over Matter, a mental health initiative, is underwritten by Geisinger. When you hear Geisinger, what comes to mind? A hospital, doctors, health insurance? We're all those things. But here's something you might not think of. We're also your local pharmacy. Geisinger Pharmacy isn't just for people in the hospital, it's for you. Want to fill a prescription? We've got you covered. Just need over-the-counter stuff? We've got that too. And Geisinger Pharmacy is run by your friends and neighbors. We're your local healthcare system and your local pharmacy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mind Over Matter podcast. I'm Tracy Matisak, and in this episode, we're talking about eating disorders. They are a bigger problem than many of us realize. Whether it's anorexia, bulimia, or something else, eating disorders affect about 9% of the U.S. population, or nearly 29 million Americans. Eating disorders kill more than 10,000 Americans every year. That is one every 52 minutes. They're most often diagnosed in teens and young adults and in women more than in men, but eating disorders can affect anyone. The good news is that recovery is possible. Our guest is Dr. Jennifer Buckwash, a licensed professional counselor and licensed clinical psychologist in Northeast Pennsylvania. She is also an eating disorder and body image specialist and a mental health advocate. Perhaps most importantly, though, Dr. Buckwash has been there. She knows what it is to have an eating disorder, and now she has made it her life's work to help others who are struggling. Dr. Jennifer Buckwash, welcome to the Mind Over Matter podcast. Thank you, Tracy. I'm so glad to be here. So you were featured in an episode of our Mind Over Matter TV show where you and your parents talked about the years that you battled an eating disorder. And I'd like to start with your story first. Your dad said that you, back then, spent hours exercising. You were eating only about 300 calories a day. And you said that back then, nothing mattered more than being the sickest or the skinniest. Everything else was meaningless. Can you unpack that for us? Sure, sure. I think um, one of the biggest things is that I hear my story being echoed in so many of my clients' stories that I hear every day is that they go through life with this sense of the only thing that makes them different or special is being sick. And so when it comes to giving that up, when it comes to getting healthy, it's a really huge decision for them to go in a different direction. Um, so I kind of get to relive that and 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 talk about that every day, which I'm honored to do. But um, yeah, I, I think one of the biggest things with eating disorders is that it often holds hands with a lot of other mental health diagnoses. So it's rare that we have an eating disorder, like you said, anorexia or bulimia or binge eating disorder on their own. They're often always with anxiety and depression. And I think those are the things that I felt first. Um, always just the sense that I was different or couldn't quite find the joy in life that I noticed other people around me were feeling. And um, so that's that's really what happened. And then there were the, these kind of series of events that led me to taking the path of an eating disorder. Whenever I'm talking to my clients or clients' parents, I often describe it as genetics um, loading the gun and environment pulling the trigger. 
often the people that tell me their stories, there's this one time that they remember where their dieting started or their excessive exercise started, and that's where things took a turn for the worst. Well, as I was sharing with you before we started the podcast, I also had an eating disorder my freshman year of college. And I remember one of the things that really stands out in my mind is that the baggier my clothes got, the better I felt about myself. And I think I was struggling with the sense of never being good enough, right? Being a perfectionist, being a people pleaser. Can you talk a little bit about that and and how that may affect or contribute to an eating disorder? Sure. Perfectionism and feeling not good enough are some of the personality traits that we see the most in eating disorders. And it sets up a pretty dismal scene because it is never enough. Um, somebody may, for example, set a goal weight or a goal size, um, get to that said number, and then continue to have to get smaller. Um, and so it really is just never enough. And I think they're always trying to prove that they are, that this is the thing that they could do well. Um, and so they do it the best that they can. Yeah. And there's a control piece of it too, right? Like you feel mm -hmm. like maybe your life is out of control, but this is one thing you can control is how much you weigh or how you eat or how you exercise. And, um, and there's a certain power in that in a strange way. Sure, sure. I mean, I think when the rest of the world around you is feeling really out of control, this seems like the thing that's the easiest to control. Um, but as you're spending your time focused on food, weight, and shape, you're actually the most out of control that you've ever been. Um, and, and that's what I try to get clients to see is that this costs a lot more than it gives. And speaking of the cost, Dr. Buckwash, how bad did it get for you? I mean, at what point did you realize this is really a problem? Yeah, I, um, my eating disorder really um, got worse in college for me as well. Um, it was my freshman and sophomore year of college. And it was actually my sister who approached me talking about um, something being wrong. And I was, you know, losing a lot of weight. And so there was this physical piece that they were noticing, but I think also a piece that I just wasn't the same person that I was before. I um, suffered from bulimia. And so a lot of my behaviors involved um, purging or compensating for the eating that I was doing. Um, and purging can get pretty violent. And I think there was a, um, a, a time that I purged that really scared me. And when I went to my sister about that, she kind of gave me an ultimatum that she wouldn't tell my parents as long as I went and got help. And so I did do that so that I didn't have to tell my parents. I eventually, of course, told my parents. Um, but that's kind of where it started. And at that point, I think there was a part of me that just wasn't quite ready to give it up. I think it did too much for me. And so I continued with it for a while. And then eventually it ended with um, a stay in a hospital and um, step down levels of care after that to really um, forge me into recovery. And I... 
I still keep that as my recovery date. So that has been, that was in 2008. And, and there's so many things that you said there that I want to follow up on. One is about your parents and your sister, because your sister sort of made a deal with you, right? Like, you know, I'm not going to say anything unless you get help. What are some of the signs? I mean, beyond the weight loss, which would be the obvious sign, but what should loved ones be looking for? Um, what should maybe set off an alarm besides weight loss that maybe a an eating disorder is present? Yeah, sure. Um, I think just like you were saying, Tracy, a lot of those personality traits um, really predispose people to having, having an eating disorder. So once they have that, so perfectionism and, and, and never feeling good enough, I think people should kind of be on alert. Um, some of the other signs or symptoms are going to be social isolation. It's going to be trying to eat um, when they're hidden or not wanting to eat out anymore, only eating specific foods. Um, of course, going to the bathroom right after they're eating. Um, and then, of course, there's physical changes that come with eating disorders, but there is no size or shape that means somebody's suffering. So the way that eating disorders are often portrayed in the, the media are, you know, white women who are very, very malnourished to the point where you can see it, right? Um, but malnourishment and, and the medical complications that can come from malnourishment happen at any size. Um, so we can't just use the body as a way to show us who's sick or who's not. Um, that's, that's a really big myth. Yeah, and that's a really important point as well. And I guess, um, Dr. Buckwash, it's important to make the distinction here, right? Because we're talking about primarily two ways that an eating disorder can manifest itself. One is anorexia, right, where, you know, we're not eating, maybe exercising a lot, and then bulimia, where people can, you know, eat much more, but then purge it afterward. And and you mentioned that there was one particular purge that really scared you. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about the physiological problems that can develop the longer that an eating disorder goes untreated. Sure, absolutely. Um, the The our bodies are really absolutely amazing and they adapt to the things that we put them through very, very well. Um, but at one point, the body kind of deteriorates or goes into a survival mode that some of the things can reverse once somebody starts eating again or um, establishing regular eating again and some of them don't go away. Um, so kind of the big ones that don't go away are going to be bone loss. So if you are losing bone because you're not feeding yourself well enough, the bone will be lost. So, um, you know, we can have 20 year olds with osteoporosis mm. and, and, and things like that. Um, again, the body going into kind of the survival mode, it will grow this small like peach fuzz like hair all over the body to kind of keep it warm. It's almost like a fur that will grow. Um, people have struggled with fertility issues after having malnourishment for a long period of time, women. Um, and basically that's because the, the, you know, the body doesn't need to produce fertility or have a baby when it's trying to survive. Um, some other things are going to be tooth decay in purging disorders or, um, you know, 
going to have some serious um, complications like electrolyte imbalance or your heart rate can be low, um, things that could could really be um, life changing and and um, they could they could really be bad. And I think so often when this happens in young people, and in both your case and mine, it was college, um, you know, there's there's a lack of awareness, right, about the long-term or not a thinking about the long-term impacts. As you said early on, you know, it's about being as thin as possible, right, or as being as sick as possible, but not really understanding necessarily, you know, kind of what the long-term impacts of that are. And I guess the other point to make is that an eating disorder is not necessarily a one-time event in your life. Um, you talked in our, our TV show about experiencing something of a relapse, if you will, after you became a mom. What happened then? Sure. Um, I kind of described it as, you know, I had this blissful recovery um, for such a long time until I it wasn't really when I was pregnant. I kind of expected my body to change when I became pregnant. So the idea of gaining weight or my body shape changing in any way, it was it was really like benign. I, I just didn't have an issue with it. Um, but once I had my daughter, and of, of course, this was coupled with some postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety, um, but it was really breastfeeding. And uh, what was triggering to me, I think at that point was that it felt like my body was failing again, right? Mm -hmm. So I had this kind of tumultuous relationship with my body when I was younger. And then now again, I'm it, it's coming back up to the surface. Um, I think at that point too, I was taking things out of my diet because of breastfeeding. Um, and, and what we know about eating disorders really is that people with eating disorders, their brains are wired in a different way. And often when they're engaging in dieting behaviors or they are in a caloric deficit and there is no intervention, it will just be a slippery slope back into the eating disorder. And I just want to clarify too, when you mentioned about the breastfeeding, was it because of difficulty with nursing or, or what was it about that that sort of started the spiral? Yeah, so I think it was layered. Um, I think yes, it was. It was certainly difficulty. Um, I felt like I was told that this was the most natural thing um, that should happen, kind of like a marker of me being a good mother or not a good mother. This was just like my. It should have been my innate talent to do this, um, and I felt like I was failing mm. because her latch wasn't right or you know, she would have gas or whatever it would be that would that would feel like a problem to me at the time. Um, I also just think it was it was just focus on my body again and the way that it felt like it was betraying me. Yeah. Yeah. And and also sort of that, you know, I'm not good enough or this isn't mm -hmm. working for me the way it's supposed to right. work for other people. Sure. Um, but I, I was interested to hear you say in, in so many words that just as having children kind of triggered some of those old thought and behavior patterns for you, having children also seemed to help heal them because through your kids, you were able to find that sort of elusive sense of connection that you had difficulty finding as a younger person. And I wonder if you could just um, for a moment speak about the importance of that meaningful connection more broadly as it relates to our mental health. 
Sure. I think that as humans, we are wired for connection and it is the thing we want most in our life. We want to know that we are loved and we want to have people to give our love to. And so mental health, eating disorders, anxiety, depression, all of the things that humans go through um, are a thing that break attachment bonds to other people. And so you're not only suffering with your own internal demons, but it's also impacting your relationships. I think early on for me, I was lucky that I was in treatment with um, women that were older than me at the time that have already started their lives. And it made me really kind of, um, I guess, hungry for recovery and not wanting that for the rest of my life. And then, um, you know, as my children were born, understanding that I wanted to give them the mom that I knew I could be, or at least the mom, uh, the, the best mom I could be with what I had at the time. And I know what I needed to do to not get sucked back into the eating disorder. Um, and so I really just kind of gathered people around me and let them know that that I was struggling. And, and I think that that's the biggest thing is that I easily could have hid and um, kind of turned inward and not let anyone know. And I think it would have been easy to relapse. Um, but really bringing a lot of awareness to it in my support circle, which they are everything to me, um, then I was able to really uh, pull forward. Yeah. And thankfully, you did have that recovery. And in fact, we want to talk about recovery and the fact that there is hope um, and what are some of the things that we can do um, as it relates to healing from an eating disorder? We're going to take a quick break and we'll talk about that and more right after this. WVIA presents a Mind Over Matter Minute. Hi, I'm Dr. Kylie Oleski from Geisinger. Changing habits such as smoking and your diet is hard. Before you start, make goals for yourself. What do you want to change? For example, if I want to cut down on sweets, how do I measure success? Track the number of days I eat fruit instead of ice cream. Do I have what I need to be successful? Do I have fresh fruit in the house? Can I achieve my goal? I'll cut back gradually, be realistic and set a start date. For example, start tonight and track my progress for two weeks. But if you need more help, talk to your doctor. Remember, you are not alone. For more, visit wvia.org forward slash mind over matter or dial 211 to speak with someone who can help. Mind Over Matter is presented by WVIA in partnership with Geisinger. And you're listening to the Mind Over Matter podcast. I'm Tracy Matisak. We're talking with Dr. Jennifer Buckwash. She is a licensed professional counselor and a licensed clinical psychologist in northeastern Pennsylvania. She's also an eating disorder and body image specialist. Um, Dr. Buckwash, we have talked throughout this podcast series and our TV show as well about the effect of the COVID-19 pandemic on our mental health. Did you see in your practice a spike in eating disorders during the pandemic? 
Yes. So um, not only new diagnoses of eating disorders were coming through my doors, but also a lot of people who were well into recovery and coming back with a relapse. Um, I think that there was just a lot of stress that was cultural and, and surrounding us at the time. And, and there were also points of food scarcity. Um, a lot of my clients that were coming back with, with relapses, it was, oh, well, I have these foods that I have learned to enjoy or foods that I feel okay with and they're not available at the grocery store. Um, and so that was a really difficult time for people with eating disorders. And I think, um, you know, this that, that simple um, idea or connection of control to the eating disorder, I think that that was a big piece during the pandemic as well is that it was it was a thing that was controllable when the world felt out of control. Yeah, yeah. And I think to the point that, you know, when we're under stress, you know, whether it's pandemic related or otherwise, that um, my sense is, at least from my own experience, um, because I've had my relapses, that you can mm -hmm. um, just be more vulnerable, right, during times of stress when mm -hmm. things do feel kind of out of control. Sure, sure, absolutely. And, um, you know, eating disorders are really coping skills gone bad, right? I, I think that generally eating disorders um, start with like a, a diet behavior that our culture says is a good thing. But it ends up, um, you know, I like to think about it like a maybe a, a historical house that has some ivy that's growing on it. And at first, there's just small pieces of ivy and people walk past the house and and they say oh that looks beautiful it builds character it's 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 really really nice um but if we let the ivy grow and we don't take care of it then it can affect the foundation or it could break in the windows um and so i think a lot of people start with eating disorders thinking that it's going to be a good thing a good change um, and then it, it goes in the opposite direction. Yeah, it's a good thing until it's not. Yes. Um, I want to talk about treatment because you see patients with eating disorders. And I know in your case that you um, went to a facility for a while for treatment. But yes. give us an idea, you know, what treatment might look like. I know that going to a treatment center, and there are many of mm -hmm. them across the country, um, is not always available to everybody, right? You, you, you need some time. They can be expensive. Um, sure. What other treatment options are there? And, and what does treatment look like um, when you meet with one of your patients? Sure, absolutely. Um, I think probably the most important piece in eating disorder care is that you have a what we call a multidisciplinary team. So that's going to include a therapist, a registered dietitian, a psychiatrist if somebody is interested in taking medications, and of course, a primary care physician. All of these people need to be on board and on the same page uh, because there are a lot of differences and opinions in how eating disorders should be treated. And we don't really have a wonderful gold standard as to what's going to give us the most success. Um, so making sure that everybody is on the same page is a really, really important thing. And so from, um, uh, I'm sorry, sure. go ahead. No, sure, please. I was just going to say, from a mental health standpoint, and for someone like you as part of mm -hmm. that treatment team, do you use cognitive therapy? Um, mm -hmm. What kinds of tools might you use in terms of sitting down with, 
a patient to help them think about things in a different way? Sure. So I use a few different types of therapy, one of them being cognitive behavioral therapy because it's the easiest thing for behavior change and um, eating disorders are driven so much by behavior. So one of the first things that we need to do is establish a regular pattern of eating and cognitive behavioral therapy has been the easiest for me to do that that I've found. Um, but I think some of the deeper work that um, comes um, from uh, attachment and internal family systems and acceptance and commitment therapy. These are some of the things that I will use once I already have a person that's weight restored and is in a better mindset to be able to do that work. Yeah, because it sounds like you you have to sort of go back and figure out how they got there or what were the sure. the patterns of thinking or the patterns of behavior perhaps um, growing yes. up that may have contributed to all that. And, and that takes time. Sure. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think um, eating disorders take a very, very long time to treat. Um, you know, I, I often have people in therapy with me for years once they commit to the process. Um, and that's not to scare people away, but that it, it is a slow and steady progress. Yeah. Um, Dr. Buckwash, the body positivity movement has gotten a lot of traction in recent years. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about the emphasis on acceptance of all body types and whether that has had an impact on eating disorders. So yes, the, the body positivity movement or body neutrality movements are really a wonderful thing because we have now access to pictures of people in the media or mannequins or anything that people are seeing on a daily basis. And and now we're seeing all sorts of shapes and sizes and colors and, and everything that we would need, levels of, of ability as well. And so it's a really, really good thing. Um, my kiddos are not growing up in a world where the only people that they see on TV are thin and white. And that is wonderful. Um, I don't know that it has decreased eating disorders. Um, I think it's helping us. I think it's it's pushing us in a better direction that we have more acceptance of these sizes and and more acceptance of people that are that are um, different than the thin body ideal that has always kind of been the top. Um, but I don't think it's really impacted how frequent eating disorders happen. I think part of that is because people are, you know, so much of eating disorders is genetic. Um, and so I don't know that that's necessarily going to go away, but probably some of the environmental triggers that are adding to the eating disorder or when the eating disorder pops out, that may be a little bit different. Well, you mentioned a moment ago your own children, and I wonder how your experience with an eating disorder might inform the way that you parent them. Sure, sure. Um, I think I really try to be um, a, a gentle parent that kind of follows the, the beat of their drum. Um, and some of that will include food. You know, I remember growing up um, having to eat certain foods, right? Like 
you have to eat the peas even if you don't like them. You have to eat, you know, this and that or kind of like, right? And and so kind of the, um, or, or the message was like, there are fun foods, right? So you have to eat your dinner before you have dessert. You have to eat this before you can have, you know, some kind of treat. Um, and I think one of the biggest things in our house is that we don't label foods as good or bad. There's no morality in food whatsoever. Um, just because I eat a traditionally labeled healthy food doesn't mean I'm a good person. And if I eat something that's traditionally deemed a treat or a snack, I'm not a bad person. Um, we include, you know, all foods during dinner time. So like dessert is part of our dinner right it's it's often that like oreos are on our dinner plate with the other things um they're they know their bodies best and we listen to them as as much as possible um there are sometimes kind of maybe where we would intervene um you know if a if a kid just is getting over a stomach virus like we're just getting over in our house um we try to say okay like i don't know that that's going to make your body feel good right now um, and kind of paying attention to how foods make them feel um, versus how we assume they're going to make them feel and just kind of go from there. Yeah, it sounds like a really intuitive way of thinking yes. about food. Sure. Yeah. Um, Dr. Buckwash, finally, um, a word of encouragement or your best advice for people who are struggling with an eating disorder, maybe in the midst of a relapse or perhaps somebody that they know and love is in this struggle, um, what would you say to them? I would say the biggest thing is that recovery is possible. I think when you're in the trenches of an eating disorder, it doesn't feel like there's any way to think other than that way. Um, and there is. There is a way to find joy in food, in making food, in sharing food with others. There is a joy in um, accepting your body and trusting it to do the things that it needs to do and for it to be the size that it's meant to be at. Um, and there's a lot more room um, for other things in your life when so much of your mind isn't taken up with food, weight, and shape. Yeah. And it sure helps if you can have your team, right? If you can have... Yes. Some help from a nutritionist, from a therapist, from a doctor, right? If you can assemble yes. um, your team around you, that goes a long yes. way. Absolutely. Yeah. Dr. Jennifer Buckwash is a licensed professional counselor and a licensed clinical psychologist in Northeast Pennsylvania. She's also an eating disorder and body image specialist and a mental health advocate. Dr. Buckwash, thank you so much for being with us and for the work that you're doing to help people heal. Thank you. I'm Tracy Matisak. You're listening to the Mind Over Matter podcast. For more information on this and other mental health topics, check out our website at wvia.org slash mindovermatter. Thanks for listening. See you next time. WVIA's Mind Over Matter, a mental health initiative, is underwritten by Geisinger. When you hear Geisinger, what comes to mind? A hospital, doctors, health insurance? We're all those things. But here's something you might not think of. We're also your local pharmacy. Geisinger Pharmacy isn't just for people in the hospital, it's for you. Wanna fill a prescription? We've got you covered. Just need over-the-counter stuff? We've got that too. And Geisinger Pharmacy is run by your friends and neighbors. We're your local healthcare system and your local pharmacy.